This past Monday started out like any other day for those working at the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. Most of the, or some of the 3,000 employees were finishing up breakfast in the cafeteria around 8 a.m. when all of a sudden gunshots began emerging from the fourth floor towards those down below. By Monday afternoon, it was confirmed that 12 people were dead. Later, news reports were revealed that the shooter was a man by the name of Aaron Alexis. Well, upon learning this, the Associated Press began interviewing some family members and close friends of Alexis to find out who this guy really was. One landlord was interviewed, interviewed and quoted as saying that he was always a very respectful and polite person and he never in a thousand years could have imagined him doing something like this. Alexis was also a waiter at a, rest, at a Thai restaurant down in Texas up until May of this year. One of the reasons why he worked at this particular place was because he could speak Thai, he loved interacting with people, and that was a place where those two worlds could kind of emerge. It was a great way for him to make customers feel welcome. Now on the surface, it seemed like he had things together, it seemed like he was a really good person, but then Monday morning rolled around only to reveal that something was going on deep within him that not even those closest to him could detect. Now, inevitably, whenever a tragedy like this occurs, the same question always gets shoved to the limelight, and it's this. At what point does a seemingly sane person justify taking innocent lives? Now, it's in these moments that the fog is lifted and we get a taste of just how broken and dark our world is today, when kindergarten classrooms get sprayed down with bullets, when we witness a neighbor verbally abusing his children, when a friend who seemed to have a good marriage leaves his wife for another woman, it's in these moments that we see just what the human heart is capable of doing and justifying. Now, truthfully, this uh, condition has defined every generation since the beginning of time, really. It goes back to why Adam and Eve first ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, to why Jonah was a racist against the people of Nineveh, to why Peter and Judas betrayed Jesus during his final hours. You see, our hearts have this natural bent to reject God's way for our life and pursue what we feel like is right and true. You see, it goes back to that ancient word called sin. Now, here's the thing, though. It's easy to recognize sin in someone else's life, but when it comes to examining our hearts, we seem to be blind to it. And so I just have to know, have you ever had a circumstance in your life where it revealed just how dark and broken you are on the inside? I mean, maybe it was in the principal's office uh, one afternoon. Perhaps it was in the backseat of a car or at a concert late one night. Now, I got to tell you, for me, this is, this is like an everyday occurrence that I've just come to accept. I mean, never do I realize how sinful and broken I am than when I'm behind a horrible driver, Right? I mean, I think thoughts when someone is driving the speed limit in the fast lane that I'm like, oh my goodness, I mean, where did that come from? I mean, there's a monster living inside of me. I mean, there's, I'm not right. At least that's what my wife tells me. Uh, and so by a brief show of hands, how many of you are there? You know what that's like to be in that situation, driving a car down the road, and I have to be careful because you could be that person. Uh, how, raise your hand for your spouse if your spouse is that person. All right, more hands there. At least, at least we're honest today in church. That's a good thing. But you know, if we're honest with ourselves and we take off the mask, we have to acknowledge that evil isn't just something that exists out there. But it resides within every heart in this room. You see, sin makes us do things that we never wanted to do, and it takes us places further than we ever wanted to go. 
There's one writer in particular in the New Testament uh, who exposes this internal struggle that he has with sin. It's found in the book of Romans, and it's in his letter to the Christians in Rome. You probably know him. He's a guy by the name of Paul. And so if you have your Bibles today, I want you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, Today we're going to be in chapter 7. Uh, If you don't know where Romans is, it's towards the back of your Bibles in between the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. It's on page 800 in the Bibles right in front of you. Now, right off the bat, we're going to see today that Paul's issue was not determining right from wrong. That wasn't where his battle was, but it was more for him an issue of control. And so Paul, in this segment of Scripture, in chapter 7, starting in verse 15, he rips open his heart and he says, hey, look, this is what's going on inside of me. Now, if Paul were here today, I don't think he would be proud of what you'd find in his heart. But you see, it's in his radical vulnerability. It's in his willingness to come clean with what's going on inside of him that he finds the ability to come free and be released from the bondage that has entangled his life for so long. And so in verse 15, um, he begins to identify a series of lies that were told and choose to believe when tempted with sin. Okay, so verse 15, here's what Paul says. He writes, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. And so when tempted with sin, the first lie that you and I love to believe is this, I can control it. I can control it. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he had been a follower of Christ for about 25 years. It's not like he was a single 20-something living in the basement of his parents' house that wasted the day away playing video games. I mean, by our standards, he was a committed disciple of Jesus. But you see, his struggle wasn't determining right from wrong. He knew God's law better than just about anybody But you see, for him, it was a battle of control. There was this ravaging sickness and illness within him. He says, I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but you know, many times the decisions that I come to most regret are always preceded by a sincere determination that I can control it. I mean, after a while, the script of my story begins to look the same. If I really had control over it, if I really had control over it, I wouldn't keep making those same mistakes over and over again. I mean, isn't that just true for you too? I mean, despite your sincere intentions, you you kept looking at that website. You kept flirting with him. You kept raising your voice at your kids. You kept harboring that bitterness. You kept feeding that habit. You kept walking. You keep waking up with a hangover from the night before. You see, it's not that you didn't know what you were doing was wrong, but it's that each time the opportunity presented itself, you told a friend, a spouse, a coworker, or a boss, nah, I got this. It won't happen to me this time. I've learned my lesson. And yet you did it just like the day, the week, or the month before. And so let me ask you this. How far must it go before you realize that you really don't have control? I mean, what will it take for you to finally come to the end of yourself and say, God, I, I, find I give up? You see, the danger with telling ourselves that we can reduce, or that we can control these fleshly desires is that it reduces sin down to behavior modification and completely eliminates the need for the Holy Spirit to invade our life and redirect our affections. I mean, sure, we cannot do something, but if our heart isn't in the right place, is it really any better? This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He kind of addresses this dilemma. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, don't do this. Behavior modification 101. 
Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, sin is internal, it's not external. It's what's inside our heart that eventually makes its way into our actions. And whenever we choose to sin, really there's a deeper issue taking place. It always goes back to a matter of idolatry. Martin Luther once said that you can't break any of God's commandments without breaking number one, which is you shall have no other gods before me. And so you think that your issue is you're critical of others, but really what it comes down to is that you like to be right more than obedience to God. Uh, You find yourself really dissatisfied in life, dissatisfied with your job, your income, your singleness, or how many kids that you have. But really what it comes down to is that you're telling God, Lord, you're not enough for me. I'm constantly pursuing after this. You see, we don't control our idols. They control us. Therefore, we must surrender them every single day. Well, the next lie that uh, we love to tell ourselves regarding sin is this, that I can overcome it. (laughs) I can overcome it. How many of us have told ourselves this? You see, controlling sin is about containing it while overcoming sin is about conquering it. And both are lies that you and I love to believe. Look at verses 17 and 18 in Romans 7. Paul says, so I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I mean, can't you just sense Paul's anguish and frustration here? Deep within his heart, he realizes the evil desires within him. And that's something, let's be honest, that won't be completely extinguished this side of heaven. But here's the thing. I know what I'm capable of, and it really scares me. I mean, I, I know what's in my heart. I know some of the thoughts that cross my mind. That's why Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Now understand that no one lies to you more than you do. No one has hurt you more than you have. You see, just when you think that you have control and that you're strong, just when you believe that you've overcome it, Satan has got you right where he wants you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Translation, temptation is always subtle and disguises sin to be something that it's really not. It promises a fortune, but the check always bounces. Christian band uh, Casting Crowns put out a uh, song a few years ago that I think really captures this idea of what Paul's talking about. There's a line um, in the song called Slow Fade that goes like this. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. Thoughts invade, choices are made, people never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. And I think that, um, I think that's what Paul's saying here. In his book, Tempted and Tried, author uh, Russell Moore talks about a particular scientist who had learned through the years of research how to track what scares and stresses livestock. Professionals in the beef industry were willing to pay a lot of money for this information because high stress levels in animals produce hormones that downgrade the quality of the meat. Now, this scientist figured out that unfamiliar surroundings cause unwanted distress within cows. And so to keep the cattle relaxed, slaughterhouses should remove anything from the side of the animals that isn't completely familiar to them. And she goes on to tell slaughterhouse employees that if you keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them. Don't unnerve them. And above all, don't hurt them. 
And so out of her research, uh, she designed a new technology that has completely changed the way slaughterhouses operate. In this new system that she has come up with, um, the cattle aren't forced off a truck but are led into silence onto a ramp. They then go through what's called a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's, a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down a path uh, that is smoothly curving. No, there are no sudden turns or movements. The cow, in turn, uh, experiences a sensation of going home. As they continue down this path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly lifts them gently upward, and then in a twinkling of an eye, a surgical device levels a strike right in between their eyes. And in that instance, they're transitioned from livestock to meat, and they're never aware enough to be alarmed by it. Anybody want a hamburger? Now, what's interesting is that one of the most frequent images of temptation throughout Scripture is of a rancher and of a livestock. Occasionally, we're told that those who are caught up into sin are like lambs led to the slaughter. In Proverbs chapter 7, a father warns his son about the slow progression of sexual temptation and how it inoculates you. It numbs you until death has occurred. So I want you to pick up on the words that he chooses to tell his son. In chapter 7, verse 21, he says this, Again, he's talking to his son. He says, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. Now what this means is that greed never begins with the image of prison in mind, but it begins with the thought that you don't have enough. Holding a grudge against a sibling never begins with the image of spending Christmas all by yourself, but it begins with this idea that you weren't treated fairly. I mean, having an affair never begins with the courtroom in mind, deciding who's going to have custody over whom, but it begins with this idea and this thought that my wife, she's not really fulfilling my needs, and so then some lighthearted discussions take place with a coworker at work, and then all of a sudden, it's off from there. You see, we tell ourselves that we can control our sin, but the truth is we can't control something that we don't know is happening to us. And so Paul says, look out for this. Um, in verse 19, he, he goes through another lie that we, we love to believe. Uh, if you're following along, here's what he says. He says, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, Paul says that sin resides with him. In verse 20, that word we get living from gives off this image of a person inhabiting a house. And so Paul says that this disease, this sickness dwells within him like a person who lives in their home. Therefore, the next lie that we love to believe is this, I won't be harmed by it. I won't be harmed by it. Now, typically when we hear that word sin, we love to think that it is really less than it really is. And so here's what I mean by that. Next time you talk with somebody about what you're struggling with in life, notice the words that you use. Uh, if you're like me, you use words like mistake, struggle, fault, a weakness in my life. Previously in chapter 6, Paul, in contrast, uses the adjectives to describe sin, words like evil, wickedness. And he says it's synonymous with death. Now, everywhere you look today, our society loves to tell us that our brokenness is really harmless. 
For example, marketing companies have done a really good job of making us very familiar with different slogans today. And so what I want to do for the next couple seconds is, is say some of these popular slogans that I think we're all familiar with. I'm going to say the first part of them. And if you know it, I'm going to have you simply finish them off. First one, I think we're all going to get. I'm going to need full participation here, okay? Here's the first slogan. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. All right, good, but that was weak. Come on. Every kiss begins with? Like a good neighbor? Oh, well, there's always next year. Indianapolis Colts. <laughs> It wasn't UK this time, okay? Um, could have gone there, but it didn't. Now, how about this one? What happens in Vegas? Right, I mean, we've all seen that guy. He heads to Vegas for the weekend parties unlike ever before, but then wakes up that next morning relieved to know that he can just leave it all behind him. I mean, he's had fun while he's there, but, um, you know, he doesn't want to take it home with him. And so the idea you get from this commercial is that though Vegas is known to be Sin City, you can kind of compartmentalize what happens there and play damage control. But you see, what that, what that commercial doesn't show you are the STDs that are contracted from one-night stands. Um, you don't see the drained bank accounts that were intended to go towards the kids' college fund. Why is that? Because seeing evil for what it is is really uncomfortable and it's messy. And so what we'd rather do is glamorize it and say, it'll never affect me. And so maybe it's not Vegas for you, but it's something else. If the weight of whatever that is that you're struggling with and that you're dealing with hasn't held you down, it's only a matter of time until it eventually will. Now, uh, every day when I head to the office, I carry with me this backpack. I've had this backpack for years. I love this backpack. It's made by L.L. Bean. Uh, nothing special about it. Uh, it just carries my laptop and books. Now, if I were to ask you how many pounds you think this backpack weighs, you might say anywhere from three to seven to may maybe 10 pounds. I mean, after all, this thing wasn't designed to carry a load of bricks on my back. Now, what you can't tell, because this thing obviously isn't on your back, and from your perspective, uh, this thing actually weighs more like 25 to 30 pounds because of what's inside of it. Now, here's the thing. If I were to carry this on my back for uh, a few minutes throughout the day, it's not going to hurt me right, right at first. But if I'm starting to carry this around on my back for several hours, for several days, for several months at a time, again, it may not hurt me right at the beginning, but it's only a matter of time until I get a pinched nerve, it messes up my posture, and it affects my back in some capacity. Because here's why. You can only carry something on your back for so long until it starts to really affect you. Now, if, if we're all honest with ourselves in here for just a moment, um, many of us, we've come in here and we've carried with us the burden of some shame, of guilt, and pain because of some sin that um, we've got on our back. You want to get rid of it. You know you should. I, I don't need to tell you that. Uh, but if you're like me, what, what keeps you from getting rid of that sin, what keeps you from getting rid of that weight is fearing what other people might think. Um, at the beginning of this week, when writing, sitting down to write this message, I couldn't really focus. Um, just felt like I had something on my back that I needed to get rid of. It had been weighing me down, and 
Come to find out, I've been carrying some things around for far too long, and, and before God would um, bless a message, he, he had to do some things in me before he could do something through me. And so on my knees in my office, I just got down, and I just I laid it before God. And one by one, I started going through things that, in my backpack, started confessing some sin. First thing I pulled out, first sin, um, is the issue of complacency. This is being refused to be moved by the things that God cares about. Um, over the course of time, I've grown numb to people's needs and concerns. When I come home in the evening, I seem to be really wrapped up in the emails and my iPhone and iPad and not so much engaging my family in conversation and investing myself into them. I'm, I'm more concerned about my Facebook status and how many likes I get than being in Scripture. Um, I like to tell myself that, hey, I don't really need to pursue my wife. We're committed. We're in this relationship together. I, I'll eventually get around to it. I mean, life just happens now, I know that when I say I'm, I'm really dealing with complacency in my life, that some of you think, well, big deal, Patrick. Aren't there far worse things to be dealing with right now? Well, let me tell you this. Jesus doesn't think so. In fact, this is the very attitude that he called out at the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He says, for you are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm, so I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. God views this sin so severely that it's one of the, it's one of the seven deadly sins that the early church fathers identified, slothfulness. So today... I'm getting it out of my backpack, getting it out of my heart. Not really proud of this next one. Um, again, as a pastor, you probably think I have it together more than I really do. But that times couldn't be further from the case. This represents the weight and the sin of pride in my life. Um, I, I really don't want to tell you this, but there are times when I like to think of myself more important than I really am. I sometimes am more concerned about my image than honesty. Uh, whenever my wife and I disagree, I always have to be the one to be right. Pride has me really concerned about, um, again, my appearance. Um, the thing about pride is that it feeds you toxic lies that seem very justifiable on the surface. And uh, out of pride come decisions that can be absolutely devastating towards those people around you. And so today, this week, I've been dealing with it. And I just want you to know, I confess it and it's coming out of my heart. Now, one thing throughout Scripture that we see is that an image for sin is that it is like a weight that bears on your back. It is a weight that boggles you down. It's a burden that you carry around with you. Now, here's the thing, though. When you take time to go through your backpack, when you take time to confess sin that has been lodged in your heart, only then do you realize that you no longer have to carry it with you because Jesus already carried it when he went to the cross. 
But you see, it comes, it, only then do you realize that you need to get rid of it and that you can experience that freedom that he so longs to give you. But it requires you coming face to face with God and saying, God, I don't have it all together. I really messed up. Here's what's going on in my heart. I'm not really proud of it. At some point, we've got to come face to face with the brokenness inside of us. We've got to acknowledge those warning signs for a decision that we may have made inside our life. And um, again, this is what Paul's getting at here. Uh, one person said it like this. He said, we fear the consequences of confession because we have yet to realize the consequences of concealment. So, um, what, what sin are you concealing today? What, what darkness are you justifying? What's one thing that no one knows you're doing and if it were exposed would cause you and maybe them a lot of hurt and pain and shame? What concerns do people around you seem to be pointing out in you most frequently? Now, whatever you're having the conversation with, you, with yourself about inside your mind, more than likely that's the thing that you've got to come clean with. I don't need to tell you what that is. I think you already know. Again, there's uh, one last lie that we love to tell ourselves about sin, and it's this. I am still good in spite of it. I'm still good in spite of it. Paul says in verse 21, he says, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Then he says, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now here again, Paul describes this tension that exists between sin and the spirit. Sin will always be this internal, unseen war that we face. In verse 24, Paul says that he is miserable. A more accurate translation would show that he is calloused and bruised from an ongoing strain because of the war within him. And so what do you do with that? I mean, how do you experience liberation from such bondage? I mean, you can try harder to defeat it, but you'll just end up more frustrated. I mean, you can blame it on other people, but you'll just end up more isolated. You can avoid certain websites, meet with an accountability group, not say certain words, refrain from texting him again, refuse to tell those jokes, and never lie a day in your life, but still this bent towards sin will come back at you sometimes even stronger. And so here's what I'm saying. If you're not struggling with what you're confessing today, a month, a year, or two years from now, it'll be something different then. Why? Because our hearts are just bent that direction. I don't believe we're born sinners, but we're born with our hearts leaning that direction. We're born in sinfulness. And if you don't believe me, you've never been around a two-year-old before. Okay, I mean, I've never had a two-year-old come up to me and say, you know what, how can I serve you today? No, I mean, the only word that they know is mine, right? Mine, 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 mine. And then it's true at an early age, and it carries on throughout the course of life. And so the question is, who will rescue us? I mean, it's great that we've identified these lies today. But now what? Look at verse 25. Paul builds up to this point. He says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I want to obey God's law, but because of the sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. 
Now, God's truth, his law is not a bad thing. In fact, it shows just how holy of a God that we serve and it shows how broken we are. But because we have broken that law, even if it were just one time throughout the course of our life, we're completely incapable of being saved through it. I mean, it's absolutely impossible to please God apart from Christ. And so if we were to remove Jesus from the equation and abide in and maintain every commandment law uh, that God has ever given from here on out, it still wouldn't be good enough for salvation. Why? Because sin still reigns. You see, the law doesn't save. The only thing it does for us is it diagnoses our problem. I mean, if you're having car trouble and you take your car into a mechanic, if the only thing he does is he shows you what's wrong, but he doesn't fix it, he didn't really do his job. And so a diagnosis points to the problem, but it doesn't provide the solution. And that's what the law does. It reveals our sin, but it doesn't save you. It doesn't bring you closer to God. Only Jesus can do that. And here's why. Because when Jesus hung upon that cross, every ounce of God's anger and anger and wrath towards the sin in your life was taken care of. And so when it's all said and done, when it's all said and done, here's the deal. What the law reveals, Jesus conceals. What the law reveals, Jesus conceals. Now, I don't know what sin the law reveals in you today, but Jesus says, look, if, if you let me, I'll take care of that. I mean, after all, I already paid for it. You see, I carried it with me when I went to the cross 2,000 years ago. Around 68 AD, a uh, letter was written to a community of Christians who had thought about returning to their former faith, Judaism. They had been followers of Jesus for quite some time, and for whatever reason, life got hard for them, and they decided that they wanted to just throw in the towel. Well, the writer of this particular book just His intent was to say, look, to turn back to Judaism is to turn back to nothing because you would be turning your back on Jesus and you would be facing your sin and you would be in bondage towards it yet again. And so you can't do that. And so here's what he said. It's known as the book of Hebrews in your Bible. He says this in chapter four. He talks about Jesus. He says, this high priest of ours, this high priest of ours, he he understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. Now, our high priest Jesus, he not only forgives our sin, he not only says, look, I've already paid for that. I absorbed the consequences of it when I hung upon the cross. But here's what that means, is that you aren't just forgiven of your sin, but when you come and you talk with Jesus about what it is you're struggling with, again, this is something that I still can't grasp, something that I can believe a lot of things throughout the Bible. This is one of them that I'm, I don't know if I'm there. Here's what he's saying. When you come to Jesus and you say, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what I'm tempted with, God doesn't say, how could you? I mean, you're awful. I mean, what a sick person you are. Not at all. In fact, if you listen closely enough, you'll hear Jesus say, me too. I've been there before. I I know how good that looks. I know how hard it is to say no. And so, verse 16, we're challenged. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. 
And so again, we see this concept of what the law reveals, Jesus conceals. And so my question for you is the same question that I would ask these believers that this letter was intended to go to 2,000 years ago. Why would you want to turn from that? And some of you, why are you turning from that? You know, I think some of us, we think that Jesus is ashamed of us because of some sin that we've got in our past. We've bought into this lie that he wants nothing to do with us because of some sin that we've got in our life, no matter how bad it may be. But you have to understand that it is false. And what it's doing is it's causing you to run away from God's arms rather than to him. And so why don't you turn back to the grace that he offers? You see, we see ourselves through what we do, but God sees us through what Jesus has done. We look up and we say, but God, I'm an addict. And he says, no, you, you are my son. But God, I, I'm an adulterer. No, no, you are my child. But God, I'm a drunk. No, you are my daughter. God treated his son like an enemy so he could treat his enemies like his son. A.W. Tozer once said that God knows the worst about you, yet he is the one who loves you most. And some of us today, we just need to accept that. You see, when you realize that what the law reveals inside of you, grace conceals, Jesus conceals, things just then begin to change, don't they? I mean, you just saw 100 baptisms here just a minute ago. Why? Because people are understanding that the sin in me, it doesn't have to define me any longer because what I have done doesn't pale into comparison to what Jesus did for me. And so that's, that's really the invitation today. If you're ready to let go of your past and you're ready to be quit, to stop being defined by what you've done and to embrace what Jesus has done for you, then you need to come forward. Just last night, we had someone uh, caught up in the drugs um, in a relationship that he shouldn't have been in and he found Jesus. And from his life here on forward, God no longer looks at him for what he does, but what Jesus has done for him. And some of us, we need to do that today. And so just make your way out of your aisles. Come down your rows. And um, we would love to meet you up front here. We'd love to walk alongside you in the midst of that decision, showing you what following Jesus can look like and how what, reveal, what is revealed in your life, Jesus conceals. And so you come forward as we stand and as we sing and worship.